0: another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host Damien Abraham and once again I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show it's got to be one of my favorite episodes ever. Julian Baker is on the show today. It is an amazing conversation. More on that in one second. But first... If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us over at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left Damien. There is a Facebook page run by my brother, show producer, um, guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you very much, buddy. I love you, man. Coming through big time this week. Appreciate your loving support, buddy. Appreciate your loving support. Speaking of support, the best way to support this podcast is by telling all your friends, telling everyone you know. You can also subscribe to this, rate it, review it on your podcast listening platform of choice. And speaking finally again of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of our friends over there at Vans and the House of Vans. Once again, we will be doing lots of stuff with Vans again this year, going out doing some stuff at House of Vans. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows what else is going to happen this year? Big year ahead. Big year ahead over here at Turned Out a Punk. Um, I know I teased that last week, and I'm going to keep teasing it again this week because we're heading towards something big in a few episodes. Episode 200, I'm going to be making some uh, changes around here. And I will be uh, starting to make those changes at episode 200. And they will continue to happen. Improvements, you know. I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come here and and, and make the show worse. You know, I'm gonna try and make it better. You know, try and make it better for uh, for all of your enjoyment. Now, segue from enjoyment. I am going to be coming to Europe this week. If you are listening to this when this show dropped. If not, potentially in the past, and if so, hopefully you made it out there. But I'm going to be coming to Europe. Uh, Fucked Up's going to be going on tour the band I am playing for the Dose Your Dreams album. We're going to be going to England next week, well, and, as well as Ireland, starting off in Dublin. And then we're going to be going to the UK for a few shows. And then we're going to be heading over... Oh yeah, we're also in Scotland, so definitely the UK for a few shows. And then we're heading over to... Um, um, mainland Europe, we're doing Germany, a couple shows in Germany, show in Holland, show in Belgium. Anyway, look it up. Concert details are found at fuckedup.cc. Look under shows and come on out. You know, it's like Turn Out a Punk IRL, you know, me, you, hanging out. Bring cannabis or whatever you want to call it in your region that you live in. Please don't roll it with tobacco, though. I know that is very common, but it's not good for you. And it doesn't taste good, and it makes you feel sick to your stomach, kind of. makes me feel sick to my stomach. But anyway, hopefully I will see you all out there this coming week. Woo! A lot of stuff talked about today. A lot of stuff talked about today already, and there's going to be even more, because today on the show, Julian Baker of Boy Genius, of solo fame of being one of my favorite guests I've had on this podcast so far. She's someone that I've been a big fan of, never met in person before, and still haven't met her in person, to be honest with you. But now we've kind of talked extensively for an hour. So, you know, I've gotten to kind of meet her now. And, wow, just as cool as I thought she'd be. A really interesting perspective, definitely a different, different perspective than I have. And, you know on punk rock, but that's what I think makes this show really cool is that everyone, no matter what your perspective is, you know, we all come together. And I say definitely a different perspective. It's not really that different, you know, slightly different, you know, maybe key differences, but anyway, this is a fantastic conversation. She is someone who can write a song and can chat on a podcast. Let me tell you that. Uh, this is, uh, going to be hopefully the first of many you'll hear, I'm not gonna blather on anymore. Uh, there are some notes. The jawbreaker song we were trying to remember was boxcar. Of course, you'll hear that when it comes up on the show. And I think that's it. Uh, on to today's show. Sit back, relax, and enjoy from X boy genius X, and and solo fame, Julian Baker on turned out a punk. <laughs> Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, of course. I'm really excited.
0: Well, as I was just telling you off air, I think you're, you know, an unbelievable, like once in a lifetime songwriter. And, but more than just that, the reason I was so excited to talk to you on the show is that I've read tons of interviews with you and heard you in other interviews. And you always reference, you know, kind of the importance of, of punk as a genre and, but I just think your take on it and, and stuff, we'll get into all this in a minute, but anyway, I'm very excited to have you on the show.
1: Oh yeah. I'm excited to be on it. I, I listen to the podcast all the time and I, um, as I was telling you off air, I was, uh, I was sort of thinking about like, you know, what is my history and relationship to the music and the genre and the history? Because I think you know, and this is something obviously we'll talk about in a minute, but I think, like, for me, it sort of took a little bit of hashing out of where my entry point is and, like, how my relationship to punk or hardcore changed, you know, because for me, I think I got into it really late. It was, like, or late in its existence. So it's it's interesting to sort of learn from, like, mentors that I have that have a very much... Like a different take on everything than I do, but
0: I don't I think for so me, I, I don't know. I like it not to cut you off. Sorry. I didn't mean, to cut no, you, cut you off. <laughs> no.
1: I was like totally meandering,
0: so it's fine. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think like you and your, you know, the success that you know you and you know, boy genius and stuff are having right now. Um, but like just you as a songwriter in the last few years, the success you've had and the fact that you keep referencing punk, you know, is is. Further proof of the thesis of this podcast, which is that this is a really important genre and it still has ripple effects all these years later from when it originally kind of was titled punk rock.
1: Oh, definitely. I think so too. Like, a lot, so many people that I meet now, no matter what genre they happen to be like classifying themselves as, I feel like started playing in a at least a rock band, Mm -hmm. like at least rock capital R, no qualifier. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I guess that's where a lot of people start with their music, but like what's really important to me. And I think it's easy to identify in other people is the kind of um, like behavioral value system. I think that punk sets up for you, even if it's theoretical, it's something that's very hard to like get, out of your mind once you're in that mindset, like the way that I grew up doing, doing shows, or the way that I came to conceptualize like myself in relationship to the audience, or myself in relationship to other people, and where like I think the anti-hierarchical uh, ideology of punk is really important in that way, and mm-hmm. I like the audience-centric nature of punk is important in that way. I don't know. That's just like me waxing philosophical about how punk influenced like literally every person that I know in the music scene now still.
0: No, it's, it's wild. Like doing this podcast and finding out like I had Craig Ferguson on and, uh, he was talking about how he still like, after he started experiencing like, you know, massive sort of Hollywood comedy success had this burden of punk rock guilt. On his shoulders. And here's this guy that, you know, was punk in the first wave, 78 through to 82 or something. But that had such an impact on him that all those years later, once he's experiencing success, he's still kind of like battling with these morals that were instilled in him by by punk music.
1: Oh, totally. Well, and it's not even necessarily. a. I was going to say it's not a bad thing, but it's like anything else, right? Like, I feel like people feel that way with the church too, or they feel that way with literally any way that you were reared when it becomes uh, extreme or when it becomes uh super, I guess, intense or all encompassing. Any mm-hmm. Anytime you get into a, an ideology that's very like exclusive and extreme, I think you run the danger of things outside of that ideology being scary. And with, punk that's certainly the case too like i i struggled with that a lot when i started touring on sprained ankle like i didn't i hated the idea that we would pay money to sleep in hotels i'd be like no (laughs) that is so stupid and foolish i cannot even imagine spending money on hotels and i feel like the other people around me that had been touring for longer were like groaning like oh my god (laughs) like I didn't want like I didn't want to do anything I Mm -hmm. was like still sleeping on a yoga mat in like a house show house and so it was hard for me to like go from that to being like oh like the crew that you know we're all working collaboratively together to do a job like we should do things in a way that aren't like the the method of touring that I'm used to. But even then, I still couldn't, like... Or even when you, like, betray your genre. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember... But again, I don't know. I probably have all of these super, like, romanticized ideas about punk and what punk truly means because of the, like, way that I grew up in the Memphis scene. I think the Memphis scene was not... Much like, I guess, what the larger national story arc of punk was like. Or maybe it was. I don't know. It felt um, isolated to me. Once I started experiencing other um, music scenes, like in the Northeast or in the Midwest, I realized just how like anomalous Memphis had been um, and that I had kind of been in a, like, ivory tower of like a romanticized punk rock does that make sense
0: totally and i and i i you know what i think this is a perfect way for me to force the format back on the show for a sec because i definitely want to talk about memphis and i think it's such a unique place and a special place but i gotta force this back into the turned out of punk <laughs> burden of format which is julian how'd you get in a punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre
1: Uh, oh gosh I know that you asked this question in your podcast and so I was like preparing I was trying to think because I get like flustered when I take things too seriously so I was like thinking to myself like when what was the first interaction that I ever had with punk and I have two answers and maybe we can decide their legitimacy together and see which was the real first time that I ever interacted with punk. Um, well, there's so, no
0: illegitimacy on this show. Like, I think that's the, the best okay. thing about it is that it's, you know, like that's the thing about these, these three letter or four, three letters. You can tell I've been smoking cannabis, four letters <laughs> that, uh, that you know, it's just, it's whatever someone brings to it. I think it, that, you know, there's all these universal kind of truths to it yet mm. it's whatever you define it as that makes it true.
1: Yeah. Definitely. I mean, so maybe like the dichotomy of those two views of the super elitist view and the universalist view of punk Mm -hmm. are like encapsulated in what I would call my first story, which is like, (laughs) I, when I was a kid, I was an only child. So I didn't have an older brother or sister showing me like cool, edgy music. I didn't have any body to influence really my music taste except for my parents and kids who were like younger and as clueless as me, um, in my classes. And so I saw green day on it. Maybe it was like dookie era and it was on like VH one or MTV or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it was craziness because they were talking, no, it had to be the like something I wouldn't even classify as punk rock now maybe but the like American idiot where he's like wearing black eyeliner and he looks like Sid Vicious but just with a tie on and he's like talking about how war is bad and that that notion like rocked my world it's like somebody's playing guitar and he looks vaguely effeminate and he disagrees with the president and all those things were like <laughs> earth shattering for me even though now I know that's like the most vanilla digestible format it could have gotten to me in you know I wasn't mm-hmm. like Ten years old, listening to Minor Threat. But the thing about that is cool because, like, without them making that concession to pop culture, I would have just gone on listening to whatever, like, the country music that was happening on the radio in Tennessee. I would have never have an entry, had an entry point. And so, like, hundred percent on it, that. It felt very punk rock to me. Also, because it was off limits, because it was explicit, and so my parents <laughs> would not buy me the Green Day. CD at Best Buy, (laughs) but I would go to the mall, and I would listen to it with my friends at the like music store. And I remember there's like one year, it was at Christmas time, so it's also a perfectly appropriate story. We were like listening to Green Day, and these kids and I, I kid you not, a fucking casualties. like jacket with the spikes that come like all the way up out of their head you know what I mean came over and started berating us and shouting at us for listening to Green Day (laughs) and I thought like oh those people are terrifying but they're probably real punks (laughs) and I got we got so bummed out and then the mall Santa said that 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 those people were bullies and they needed to be bludgeoned with a baseball bat and I was like wow what a beautiful time for it to be Christmas in the mall while this mall Santa shouts at a kid in a fucking casualties t-shirt. But uh, that was like, that's what I thought real punks were then yeah, after that. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I guess I'm not, I guess I'm not that.
0: Um, yeah. But it's funny. Cause like you're, you're saying like without that green day outreach that they did, like, I don't know if I would have gotten into it. Like, I mean, there's so many of us that that was like, you needed that kind of like, Gateway drug in the form of like a, a poppy band that was accessible that was kind of going for it without their drive to be rock stars, where would you and I be now?
1: Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, well exactly, and it's crazy it's like everybody has to have a unless you have somebody who's shepherding you along like um Matthew Gillum, who is the drummer for uh, Starkillers and Forrester, which mm-hmm. is the band I was in um, in Memphis, he had older brothers who were making him listen to, like, really heavy stuff and taking him to see, like, Poison the Well when he was 10. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't have that. But I just found out, so I guess the more, like, physical interaction that I had with punk for the first time where it really blew my mind is, like, I went to the skate park because I heard that there's, like, a metalcore show happening. And it was like $10. And I could not believe that there were like six bands playing. (laughs) Do do you like, I mean, I'm sure you've played on a show like this. Oh, yeah. It's like the show starts, it's still bright outside. And then like seven bands play. And they all have like illegible metalcore fonts. But that I went to a show like that when I was in like sixth grade, maybe I was so young and i was so lame and I, it was at the skate park and it was crazy. It was the first time I had ever heard somebody screaming in a band. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that person is doing how, like they are performing how I feel inside and they're performing with an intensity in a way that I didn't know was loud Like, I thought you had to have formal skill. I thought you had to have technical knowledge. I didn't think that it was um, acceptable to scream. You know, it kind of broke the social decorum that everyone abides by. But that's the kind of angst that you're feeling inside when you're 12 years old. And I saw that and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be in a band like that. And I want to scream and listen to only... This kind of music. And then I just would go to the skate park and be like your typical mall rat slash skate park rat <laughs> hanging out, listening to punk and hardcore music
0: at the spawn Who were some of the bands? Like, are there any bands that you kind of went on to see later on that played that first show you went to?
1: Oh, my God. I'm trying to think of who... There's like an un- it was like all right in the same time. But also again, this is one of those times where I'm going to get self-conscious about the bands that I was going to see because I was a little young. And so like I saw I saw Poison the Well. Poison the Well opened a Silverstein show, which yep. now seems crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, that- <laughs> oh man, I w- I mean, no, it doesn't seem crazy to me. Both of those bands are really great. It's not a competition. But you know what I mean? Like, th- those bands would even be together. I, and, like, I feel like this might be a lie, but I feel like I saw Despise Icon play with Job for a Cowboy, which, like, it's like they these bands were just, like, slapped together. You know what I mean? In mm-hmm. this, like, weird. But also, that was the only place. So the skate park of Memphis, everyone went there. And it was such a weird time maybe for music because after that place shut down, no one really came to Memphis. Like people kind of came to the new Daisy, but then it was like there was nowhere else to play. And I started going to more like house shows and like um, shows that would be in art spaces or in parking lots because I think Memphis started to fall off and become conceptualized by people as like a tier two city and so everybody hit Nashville and Atlanta and we would see these cool tours from bands we loved but no one ever came through um except for like smaller bands in the area but that was great because then I got into going to like it blew my mind when I found out that people had shows in their living room (laughs) that was like so insane and groundbreaking for me but again you know totally addictive because here are these people that are just there's no hierarchy really at all there's these people's music is not on iTunes and you can't buy tickets to it on Ticketmaster you just have to show up but everybody knows each other's music you know well
0: oh, I love it. and I think the thing when you're talking about Memphis yeah like because that's the place I don't I've never even been to Memphis but I'm a huge fan of the stuff that's come out of there because it feels like, like you said, like Nashville, somewhere that bands go to Atlanta, somewhere that bands go to, but Memphis is like the, like the second city that just seems to develop its own thing. And there's just so many great bands like yourself, but like, you know, back to big star, obviously too, but like even the Garner Records stuff, there's just like mm-hmm. constantly like a, a cool, but like you're saying, like a scene that develops unto itself a little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, it's like the scene that I was a part of in Memphis I think it was kind of insular but maybe Memphis has always been like that like I in the way that it sounds like nothing else because hmm, I was I was gonna say like it seems like resource scarcity almost breathes this attitude of cooperation out of necessity so like the reason why when I started going to house shows um, that my band became friends with a bunch of different bands, like a folk punk band and like a shoegaze band and a super straightforward punk band and like a screamo band is because there's just not in a big enough scene for there to be like different tables, like the, punk kid table and the indie kid table it's like you all have to share one all ages art space so you just have to cooperate and all the screamo band people have to cooperate with the doom band people to have a show or else there's gonna be like three people at that show but it was really nice because i think it sort of imbued me with this attitude that like there's not a horizontal barrier between genres and there's nothing that really classifies as like not permitted or not legitimate enough like an example I use all the time is that like the guy who ran the punk house where there'd be house shows would let the like fraternity dudes who had the kind of like Goo Goo Dolls sounding band <laughs> play at the show and I remember being like why <laughs> they're literally wearing Sperry's why are they here Um, because you know I was an angry pissed off kid and I yeah. didn't want the popular kids to be in my thing and I remember it's Brian from Smith 7 which is like the record slash booking Uh, situation that was in Memphis at that time. He was like, those kids need a place to go too, And you can't keep, like, if you keep the cool kids out of your zone, then you're not really any better than the cool kids keeping you out of their zone. But that's just not necessarily how stuff goes in other parts of the united states and i just had this like kumbaya attitude of like punk is for everyone and like no one's gonna get beat up for no reason in a show and that was not true when i started touring other parts of the u.s
0: yeah we had the same sort of naive kind of thing going on in in toronto too i think the same way that we didn't have a lot of bands coming through so a lot of it yeah you know you couldn't like you said you couldn't be snobby like the ska band's going to have to play with the power violence band because <laughs> there's just no other way that anyone's going to be around. Like you said, there's three people at those shows otherwise. Yeah, dude. It, it, it's also like, it's funny with Memphis, I guess, like, you know, once again, 100% as an outsider saying this, but like, it would seem like it's just like the hardcore people. I don't mean that in terms of genre, but I mean like in terms of just like the music people that stick around Memphis, because if you had, you know, ambitions of quote unquote making it, you'd probably just go to like Nashville.
1: Yeah, and that's like, I mean, so I live in Nashville now, mm-hmm. and I feel like a traitor still. <laughs> Nashville is okay. It's an okay place. I don't actually have as many qualms with it as I pretend to because there's a, like, a, I guess a sibling rivalry dynamic between those two Tennessee cities. Yeah. But when I first, like, when I first moved to Middle Tennessee— I moved to Murfreesboro, which is like 45 minutes south, and even there in Murfreesboro there has to be a different scene because it's too much freaking trouble to get up to Nashville. And also, it was like kind of hard to get shows if you were an outsider and you didn't know the like inns. And so people would just come to the college town and play like a a boozy punk squad. And that's that felt to me, closer to Memphis than the Nashville scene felt. and th- but it's like, yeah, you're right. like the I didn't want to leave Memphis because I felt like I believe in this city so much and I've seen so much good come out of here that I wanted to stay and really like align myself with that community and be like contributing to its growth still and, and wear that badge. Um, but it's also like, it's a scene that I think I find Memphis has a lot of similarities to like a Detroit, um, because it's constantly, I feel like turning itself over and kind of plowing the, social or anthropological soil and like having to regenerate because since there's nothing coming in to invest in it, all it has is its own energy and its own people. So it's like in a state of constant fluctuation. And when I would go away on tour for months at a time and then come back, it would be like so crazy different. Uh, and then I'd go away again and then I'd come back and the people who used to have shows weren't having shows and the people Like new people are having shows, and so it's like kind of hard to keep up with. But it's I love Memphis to death so much.
0: And you want to play with those Goo Goo Doll style bands once in a while, dude?
1: I want to play with the Goo Goo Doll style bands. That was the first like band band that I played in, though, was like with a person from my church. Because then, I mean, I don't even know how to start on this. But so I guess back. If we, like, dial it back yeah, to... Yeah, back to the journey. Back yeah, to the back cycle. to... Okay, I'm trying to, like, place this chronologically in my head, because when I, I got into Green Day, and I thought, wow, this is really amazing, and then I got some perspective forced upon me by casualties kids at the mall.
0: (laughs) And it's like, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Yo, Green Day, like, that band, like, was one of the original Gilman bands. They played with fucking Neurosis and Operation Ivy. It's like, you know. Dude, yeah.
1: And now it's like I have all this context because I did the dork thing and I, like, read all these books about punk. And so now I'm like, oh, well, but wasn't that at a time where, like, every Bay Area punk band had a shot. You know what I mean? Like, there was so much coming out of the Bay Area, and it seems almost arbitrary. Like, some bands labels threw hundreds of thousands of dollars at, and they became Green Day. And other bands labels threw hundreds of thousands of dollars at, and they wanted to be rock stars, too. And they stayed obscure and now legitimate. But, like, like there's a Bay Area punk band called, like, maybe... Are they from the Bay Area? Do you know that band 15?
0: Uh, yep. Yep, definitely.
1: Okay, see, like, I feel like they... We're also in that wave of like bands that, you know, were like super h- huge for a minute. But I mean, maybe, maybe I'm sort of skewed because bands that were huge to me were mostly dictated by like what the older people around me were listening to. And there was a band in Memphis that sounded like 15 and Love 15.
0: Well, first of all, yes, I need to hear that name of that band because I love 15 as well. And yeah, like, I don't know, like 15 was like, the, that band's like fascinating when you like look at them because like they ultimately break up because they don't want success, or at least that's how they present it on that last EP. Yeah. I love that band. What's the band from Memphis that sounded like? Oh,
1: dude. Was- okay. they. It's like, well, I guess it's less of a sonic like an exact sonic similarity Mm -hmm. but um more like the ethos of the band and the name of the band is wicker Wicker. i have a wicker i have a wicker tattoo dude i will email you the song that i think you're gonna freaking love it this so but also like if you think about the punk ethos of like 15 breaking up because they don't want success like wicker was just a Memphis band, and they're like an anti-band. So they would do stuff like, what's the least successful marketing plan Um, if if the target market of a boy band is like 16-year-old girls? What do 16-year-old girls not want to see? A unicorn shooting itself in the head. So they have these crazy t-shirts that are like so vulgar, and they're like a unicorn shooting itself in the head. But then there are also people who would just give away literally thousands of dollars <laughs> to other bands that because they just didn't have money to print t-shirts and one of those bands was my band That's <laughs> and fucking just awesome. like, well and then like they re- they still play shows and like brian is still my very good friend and they he recently just used like some money that he's had saved to print a whole ton of 12 inches and they give them away at the shows for free like That, if that's not the most amazing inversion of the like consumerist paradigm of music, like I don't know what is, yeah. But so, like, that's the model of person that I saw making music and booking shows. Um, and so it's like, it's like you said, like maybe it's a little bit of punk guilt, but also just punk ideology that sets up a really Hyper egalitarian um, idealism in the mind that's kind of hard to outwork. But also, I think that that's because. hmm, So, like, the bridge that I jumped from, and I guess still it's like one that I am straddling a little bit, but from like playing music exclusively in church, because that's where you play music if you're a kid in like a traditional, I guess, like town where, you know, like it's not even necessarily that my parents forced religion on me, but I think that culturally, socially, you have a, like, gosh, why did all the words just go out of my mouth? You have like a, agreed upon standard of behavior that you have to fit yourself into and maybe playing in a band doesn't necessarily fit that but rocking out for god can (laughs) like so then you can kind of become the like i you know in that world that i found myself in briefly of like the christian metalcore world because that ends up being the the antidote to um, parents that don't like music that screams like I'm bands like the Chariot and Under Oath were essentially why I got away with heavy music in the first place, and then later, of course, like it it didn't end up mattering. But I remember like my dad asking like what what are you listening to like what is this like obviously uh, upset about the the fact that these artists were screaming and that the music sounded like utter chaos and there's all these like minor seconds and like scary guitar um and i was like dad they're singing about god <laughs> and it was just like the ultimate power move for any child <laughs> to be like you can't say anything bad about it now and then of course but i feel like you know with so many of my friends, that's how you get to go to the shows with bands that aren't singing about God, and they're just screaming about whatever. They're screaming about the government, but you have to find a way to make it acceptable within your like super dominant culture.
0: It's funny because like I I've been fascinated by sort of the the religious side of punk from afar for you know since I you know, found out about it type thing. And, you know, I think from the outside, it's always like, oh, they're trying to indoctrinate, they're trying to recruit people. But, you know, you never, because I guess looking from an outsider perspective, you never see it, it's like, oh, no, this is actually an escape. This is like a way for people to get into all other types of music. This is an entry point, not like a a recruitment tool.
1: Oh, exactly. Well.
0: It could be both.
1: (laughs) I was about to say, that's the thing is that I think, you know, and I'm a lot more careful about how I discuss um, like my relationship to music that's about faith mm-hmm. for this reason is because I think I again like I have a proclivity to see the most the most ideal form of a thing and the it's and see it for its best version uh, but that's unfortunately not always the case and so I would say exactly what you're saying is that the function that like, Christian, quote-unquote, Christian hardcore, like, uh, Christian metalcore served is that it allowed you into this world that would be otherwise demonized and, um, ridiculed and, uh, maybe hidden from you if you were a kid who grew up religious. It gave you a way to get into that, and it gave you a way to explore your anger and your angst and your fear and, have it be accepted by the people around you. And ultimately, like I would say nine times out of 10, those, the kids that I knew that like, we all got into listening to the chariot, Norma Jean and, uh, under us together. ended we ended up getting into hardcore bands that had nothing, no faith affiliation. However, I mean, it, can be a recruitment tool. Because the other thing about it is that, like, you know, I forget if we were saying this on or off the air, but you were talking about the similarities between hardcore and religion and how it really, like, for a lot of people who don't see themselves as aligned with any particular faith tradition, having an intense connection to hardcore specifically becomes your like faith community. And so when you combine those two things, like when you combine the sort of loyalist um, elitism that can uh, arise in hardcore uh, with religion, which is already sort of a tricky thing with its like insular and exclusive nature, like that gets really dangerous.
0: Well, it's funny because you said you said hardcore there, but I would say all punk because like those kids yeah. attacking you in that mall because you're not listening to the quote unquote right punk. That's like a fanatical kind of reaction to something. Oh, true. Um, yeah. even there too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the and fanatical I think is a good like word to use, but it seems almost like. When you see someone as doing it wrong or threatening the the paradigm that you've set up in your mind of how punk should be or how, you know, hardcore metal should be or, you know, it's the same as someone threatening your ideal of how your religious values should be played out. Or, you know, like, th- what is that song? It's like, you're not punk and i'm telling everybody is a like jawbreaker yeah dude yeah yes i i knew it was jawbreaker i couldn't think of what song it was
0: <laughs> i can't but remember the name of the song either that
1: song is such a great like satire of the way that i feel like you could be called out for not aligning yourself with the group but that sort of hive mind is exactly like um a religious mentality you know It's like out of fear of what happens when you don't adhere to the pre-existing standard. And that's not to say like I'm saying all this in like a negative uh, perspective, I suppose. But then there's like infinitely more amazing things that the world of punk can offer because of its like because it's an analog to religion. I think, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think it it, totally, and it provides like a space for people that might have lost that moral direction that was provided by their faith with a moral compass, you know? Sometimes not the best moral compass, depending on where they try and align themselves, but like still like, you know, as, as a person who was raised with religion and then moved away from it as I got older, like it was somewhere where I learned about a whole new you know way of living a whole new moral kind of like focus that was you know took that place of in my life
1: oh totally and like it's crazy because maybe specifically with me and I think it's obviously because of how I was raised and indoctrinated with the values that I was at at a young age um but like the Thing that I think punk does that Christianity also does that maybe people don't realize or maybe they do realize on a subconscious level um, is that it somehow holds this paradox of um, the individual and the whole very neatly. Like, it both recognizes that the individual is unlike anyone else and it also reminds that like it tells you your specialness it recognizes you and then it provides you with a community and then asks that you serve it you know what i mean like i feel like the diy scene is entirely built upon people doing things for the sake of of their community and for the mutual benefit of the others around them that enjoy music. Like every time you see a benefit show or every time there's like, somebody lets you practice at their house or somebody is like putting up a band and letting them sleep on their floor or having a potluck because there's a touring band coming through and that touring band probably hasn't eaten or collecting donations at the door. Like it's all about saying like, This space is a refuge for people who feel that the things that make them different have made them ostracized in other parts of mainstream culture. So here we are offering like, a refuge for them, acknowledging their individuality, but then also demanding their participation in this collaborative effort that serves a group. It's like that makes it sound culty. No, Maybe no, it is a little culty.
0: No, but it's almost like what's what's the and I'm excuse me for my not remembering this, but the, the the idea that you're supposed to give a certain percentage of your income to the church tithing?
1: Oh yeah, it's called tithing.
0: Um but like it's almost like there's a tithing in punk and hardcore where like <laughs>
1: totally. you
0: do give like your you know, large as I'm surrounded by uh tokens received from my religion for that, but uh like you know you get you you pay for these you give your income so you can kind of support this thing that you believe in that's providing people with, with a sense of belonging, a sense of space, you know, and like, like you're saying, like it does, it does serve that role like of saying people like you're worthy, you know, like you're, you're a good person. Like you're, you're, you come here, the rest of the world might be against you, but when we're in here together, we're together and we believe in something bigger than us.
1: Oh my gosh. That's brilliant. You are so right. No, I mean, the word choice that you used um, about worthiness, Mm -hmm. I think that's what made me get so emotional at the first house show I ever went to. I'm just an emotional person. I feel (laughs) like it's like me crying at a house show. Um, But when I was a kid, I went and saw for the first time somebody was putting on a show in their living room. And half the set the microphone wasn't even in the lead singer's hand they were just passing around the microphone and all these kids with like pimples and who were otherwise you know unremarkable who were not rock stars or who were not even in successful local bands they were just people that were fans of that band all got to sing at the same time mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and the whole set was like that. The whole set was just an uncomfortable, sweaty gaggle of people crowded around a single microphone with no one particular person in charge. And I remember just thinking, like, anybody could do what that lead singer is doing, and he's letting them all do it. Like, now that he's achieved this position of power he's doing the antithetical thing and giving it away mm-hmm. so that other people can feel like they are worthy of saying what they feel into a microphone and i don't think i would have been the singer of a band if i hadn't seen that happen because i still thought you know like even when i went to shows it the skate park or the complex or wherever there was still kind of a stage. And even though the people that I idolized at that time were like just average Joe's in a punk or hardcore band, I, there's a amount of separation because of their, like the sensationalism of the show, like up on a stage and seeing a DIY show was like the most empowering thing that I had ever witnessed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that became a source of validation and a source of confidence and a source of camaraderie that was so much more powerful than anything I had experienced before that, I guess. Um, So yeah, it is a lot about worthiness.
0: (laughs) It's also the first place you feel as a, like, you know, what you're describing, the same thing I felt when I went there. It's like the first place you feel as a young person that your your words are important, that you should, you should be up there, you know, giving the preaching, you know, telling people about it, like, you know, getting on the microphone and, and that's your, you know, go out there and start a band, do it yourself. Like this is your stage as much as it's our stage type vibes.
1: Totally. Yeah, exactly. That's what, I don't know that is it's a very revolutionary concept i think
0: what where did you first hear about the sort of the concept of of faith based or faith uh hardcore punk like where did you hear about this thing was it someone that that you knew in church or
1: um I'm trying to think uh because what what's interesting is that there was like this disconnect between me playing music in church and me having friends that listen to Christian hardcore. Mm-hmm. So, and then there was a moment too, where Christian hardcore bands started to sort of like cross over into just the regular scene, but also Absolutely. the quote unquote regular scene for me. And I'll, I'll admit this. I'll admit it. I uh, was like uh, the like, bands that would be on the hot topic t-shirt wall. You know what I mean? Yep. Like that was me. But then, it, so what was crazy is that when I was a senior in high school, all the kids that I had grew, grew up with, like in middle school, all hanging out outside of Hot Topic and listening to bands, they were like, gl- like glam metalcore bands. Those kids now were like suddenly into Madball, and, ter- <laughs> and I was like, I saw, I saw you. We were there together. We saw each other at the mall five years ago. It's okay. Um, But, like, yeah, like, I I was very slow to picking up what I guess was going on outside of the southern United States, Um, because there were bands that would come through, like, oh, gosh, Wars Prada, The Chariot, Norma Jean, uh... Under Oath, those bands they were I guess they were from like Florida and Georgia mm-hmm. and around there. And I wonder if it doesn't coincide with the fact that it was like a southern thing. That in the South, like religion was really staunchly a part of culture and something that families like really imposed upon kids. Um it could have been like that other places too but it's just my experience being from the south that I feel like the southern metalcore bands toured that like circuit and then like no bands from the northeast ever came like there, I, I don't know if Have Heart has ever played even in Tennessee I would have known about it but like all the like Boston and, uh, Baltimore, like hardcore stuff took so long for me to find out about because it wasn't in my immediate vicinity. Mm-hmm. And like before, you know, I'm not trying to like pull the age card or whatever, but that, you know, there wasn't Twitter and there wasn't like, I don't even know if we were aware of Bandcamp until we were like seniors in high school. So when I was a young, young kid, I, I would just have to wait until some new kind of music came through and then i would buy their cd like i couldn't i couldn't just find it on the internet like i didn't even know that the genre of screamo existed until that band calculator played at the house and i was just like what are these people <laughs> doing this is so insane like the very mathy fast um like
0: frantic oh i know the style
1: it's so that but i was in love with it immediately and then i was like i just felt like constantly so late to the party i'd be like have you guys heard of kid crash and the saddest landscape like these bands are amazing and people were like yawning like those bands have already happened and they don't play shows anymore like you're so far behind
0: but it's almost then you're like you're discovering and kind of building your own universe at that point cuz i felt the same way when i was getting into stuff it was like oh that stuff's all over and then it's like, yeah, but it's like, it's still here. I can make it now. I can just,
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Like you finally show up and everybody's like done that thing and moved on. You're like, oh damn it. Like I totally missed it, but no, like, um, so yeah, that was how I would learn about anything. That was how I learned about, um, most of the, like, I guess Christian hardcore that I listened to except for the, um, a boy brushed red. Um uh, that oh no, what, what is it called? Uh oh. We're only chasing safety? Uh that was available at Life Christian bookstore. And I remember that was like the biggest hack of my middle school experience. And then like here's the thing though that I feel like I listened to um Shauna Potter was talking about this too, about being like Self-conscious that she couldn't... That she didn't have all the, like, cred of having seen all these amazing bands and amazing shows. Because i talk to people that grew up in anywhere, Richmond or New York or Boston, and they'll have insane show stories. But my... All my awareness of... Like... Any band, like youth of today or like even something that is like Shelter Zao, Zeo, which is still Christian adjacent, but is older and has a little bit more history attached to it. That came so much later for me out of just fascination with the genre because I was too young and I missed it.
0: Yeah, but that's why you're like, a, that's why to me, you're like the truest of true punks because you're like going out and finding out about this stuff just because this genre makes sense to you and you want to put all the pieces together like like there oh, should be totally. no insecurity about you know like your place within it because like you're doing the work that like so few people do
1: oh yeah i love can i just like attach truest of true punks as like y- your <laughs> blurb about me <laughs> yeah, absolutely me feel less. please
0: i would be no. honored
1: But seriously, like, I guess, I guess you're right because it is, it becomes then you're like a student of the culture of punk and that's okay. It's okay to have not been there for every like, um, milestone moment of the genre because you have an attachment to something bigger than that. That's the, the ethos of it. Like that is not really, that has nothing to do with the sort of, um, The aesthetic quality of it. Um, But yeah, and it's interesting because now, I guess, I was going to say the scene is so different, but I just like don't know. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No, I I feel like, but I think there are probably constants that still show up, you know, like the stuff that we're talking about. I think it like the, the place this fulfills in people's lives, like that's the thing that will remain the same.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's still, it's crazy because I think sometimes of how music is changing, and I wonder if kids even look to hardcore as like Mm -hmm. an expressive or accessible genre now because Mm -hmm. I think of like the SoundCloud, like rap and R&B and noise music and electronic music and house music and like I discover and dive and delve into that more um out of fascination for just like how is it made and like how are these kids getting their hands on their drum machines and creating this genre that's unlike anything that's ever been heard before and then sometimes I think that's in its own way yet another analog to punk like punk has the ability to transcend guitar music i don't i'm not saying i want it to or that it's in any way approaching obsolescence but there's something punk about a style of expression that's able to supersede or maybe supersede isn't the right word no but I, like, I, I, go on yeah uh, i was going to say it's able to like subvert um whatever the consumerist norm is you know what i mean like mm-hmm. labels and radio play and streaming services being the master of everything like whenever there's music that's able to be free on soundcloud and be huge just because people like listening to it and to happen in basements and weird bars and make people feel understood and less alone. I think that's like getting at the heart of what punk is to me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think it only becomes like guitar based music kind of post that codification that happens in the early eighties of punk rock. Like that first wave, you got bands like the screamers, you got bands like artists, like uh, throbbing gristle. Like you've got just groups that are really pushing the envelope all under this idea that they're part of this thing called punk, you know, and they're, they weren't all doing guitar stuff. And, and like you're saying about this stuff that's happening now, like it's amazing, like how many of these people that are SoundCloud rappers, you know, not all of them obviously, or, or, or noise rappers or people that are coming from this, that do have that, you know, punk kind of dabbling or influence in their past at some point.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And, and One thing that makes me super happy is like getting back to what we were saying earlier in this conversation is that I see that that genre is like reaching back into um, this collective history that includes heavy music, that includes punk rock, and includes a lot of like, you know, pop punk that spoke to angsty 12 year olds and hardcore that spoke to angsty 20-year-olds and, you know, on and on and on. And it's sort of mining that for the same ethos and, like, emotional currency and just, like, putting it in a new form. And because of that, like, a band I'm so fascinated by is Turnstile because I went, like... I had liked their music, and then when I saw them perform live, I was like, this is like a hip-hop show. This is like the hip-hop show I saw last week. These kids are acting the same way, and it's sort of like a chicken and egg thing, (laughs) where it's like, whatever way you're able to harness the energy that people need to express and become a conduit for it, that's what's like most important outside of that, like genre descriptors become a little bit irrelevant, mm-hmm. but also what a great live band. So good. Oh,
0: incredible live band. Yeah. like <laughs> Oh, it's, it's funny too. Cause like both, you know, like rap music, hip hop and, and punk hardcore come from the same place and the same time. Like it's, it's like this energy, that was in New York, I guess, in the late seventies, where these all these influences coalesce, and you have the birth of these two, you know, like like for lack of a better term, like music of the streets, street music. Totally. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm a a huge huge fan of like the idea of like that we're at this point where everything's kind of like coming together, like it's all coming together.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit freeing to feel that. The, uh, the boundaries are disintegrating because it offers you this, like, awesome horizontal freedom of, like, just being, like, totally integrated with, like, whatever and not having to feel a particular allegiance to a single style of music. But, dude, I, I think it's interesting also, like, what you're talking about, like, uh, hip-hop and hardcore coming out of the same sort of social genesis um, or like a set of social conditions that's always been a thing that's fascinated me too and I've always been like man this feels like risky business I like hip-hop music I understand how deeply unqualified I am (laughs) to assess its social influence as a person who will never be able to identify or experience many of the things discussed in hip-hop, but I also think that like like for instance the kind of ideas espoused by a half-heart, or like a use of today, or like any sort of like principled, older, like, I guess, youth crew band, um, those are, like, similar to, I feel like, what a lot of older conscious rap is trying to express for similar reasons, which are, you know, these kids are experiencing adversity that's outside of their control and seeing how, It can turn the human being, like, the machinations of a society that beats you down and has, like, no sympathy for its citizens can turn you into a bitter and destructive and selfish individual. And it's like both of those genres are, like, urging you to strive for something outside of yourself for something better. Um, and that's like really beautiful to me that they sort of like correlate Absolutely. The, and provide people that comfort. I mean, I, I feel like I latched on, like, that's why I latched on to music like that. Like hearing a song like Watch Me Rise, to have someone like screaming that at me, to, like, just be a better person every day felt very validating and also very convicting. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, too, because it's, like, both those genres are two of the only genres that privilege youth and the voices of youth. Like, especially now in, in rap music and hip-hop, like, it's so many young young artists that are, are are blowing up and getting popular right now. Like, it really feels like both of those you know, genres are like few few spaces that kids, young people are given the opportunity to kind of have equal platform as older people, if not sometimes a a larger platform than the older people.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. Totally. And to have your ideas actually heard, you know, that's another thing that I feel like the punk community offered me that, you know, maybe didn't even have to do with music, directly, but think about things that are peripheral to it, like um, zine culture, or just the exchange of ideals that happens in punk. Like There are so many things that I just didn't have language or words for to talk about or to have an open discourse about until bands from Pittsburgh or bands from Chicago would come down and they would have zines at their table. And it literally would open your mind in a way that felt either neglected or discouraged by the authority figures. And like, you know, because no one was telling me about that, like whatever capitalism is bad. No one was telling me that in my like middle school or my high school. And that's because like you're a kid almost entirely confined to the, like, parameters set for you by people who traditionalism benefits. So you need you need a safe space where you can have an exchange of ideas with, like, peers that maybe know a little bit more than you and can, like, drop a little bit of knowledge on you. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. That's still happening to me. And it's kind of
0: awesome. Yeah. Like I've, i I had a uh, Chris uh, Freeman on from uh, pansy division on the podcast one time. Oh, he talking, yeah. And he's talking about going on tour with green day and it's like, you know, not to overstate green day's bravery for doing this move. Cause obviously pansy Division's the, the group that's going out every night and confronting the audiences yeah. But like, at the same time, like it's a cool move of green day to be like, yo, let's just bring this killer band on tour with us and expose a whole world swath of kids that wouldn't otherwise maybe never hear of them to their music. And it's just like, it's kind of like the cool thing that punk, you know, it's that it's like, like, you know, it's the gateway. It's like that weird kind of little portal to a bunch of cool ideas that are much larger than punk.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. And now there's people that I still meet that are like, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, whatever, a, a suit, as I would have said when I was 13, (laughs) but that conduct themselves still with those sets of principles modeled for them by people who, for whom profit actually wasn't the bottom line. You know, like I, I think that's the most jarring thing when a person like never grew up doing any sort of like collaborative DIY thing. Um, and I'm not hating on people who, like, weren't in a DIY scene because that's also privileged. Like, you know, there's people from tiny towns in the middle of nowhere that just, like, didn't have that option. But I think I, I meet people who maybe never had that modeled for them in music. And it, it's always, like, it's hard to explain and it's almost, like, a, something that you can't articulate That you have to just model by continuing to do things the way that you grew up doing them. And, you know, proving by example that, you know, financial gain or social media numbers or superficial things, they're not the end-all be-all of success. That's not the metric by which you can measure your impact as a band. Or as an artist. Um, And I think that's maybe, I'm so glad that that is the kind of environment that I grew up around. I think about that a lot. Like, what if I had never had exposure to those ideas? You know, I'd be a lot different of a person, I think.
0: Yeah. Like I find there's, you're right. Like it's, it is a privilege. Like, so I'm not once again, dissing anyone that didn't have the opportunity to to experience that. But at the same time, like it is a weird grounding. Like there's just so many people you meet, you know, later in life, you know, like you're saying that, that were there and were impacted by it. And it's almost like, if you can take them back to that time and place, you can kind of see that commonality that you share with them, even though they're at a completely different stage in their life. Exactly, replacing their life, I should say. Um, I've kept you for an exceedingly long time, and I really appreciate you. Uh, you know, just putting up with this.
1: Oh, it's it. I wasn't putting up with it at all. It was <laughs> it was my pleasure, honestly. Thanks for talking to me for freaking hour about um, punk.
0: Well, before <laughs> I let you go, I do have uh, one more question. Um, okay, was it? Is it weird? You know, you mentioned The Devil Wears Prada as being one of the few bands that you got to see. And like, here we are, they're covering you, you know, like doing your music. Is that like, I don't know, like where does that sit with you?
1: It was really, it was cool. And it was very flattering. It was awesome. And I need like, I, at some point I had somebody's contact and I feel like it got lost through all the, uh, you know how it does when you like switch phones and I'm so technologically inept, but, um, but I actually, I was just talking to um, Josh Goggin, who's in an amazing band called 68 and who was in the Chariot, who's in Norma Jean. Uh, and like even my band getting to play with his band four or so years ago was like beyond anything that I could have ever aspired to do. And then it was crazy. I bring that up because he texted me that he was on tour with Devil Wears Prada and they were talking about it and I said hello. But it was crazy I saw I actually played the Masquerade the same night uh as the Devil Wars brought it and I saw them backstage and I was like, hey, um, you probably don't remember this, but my dad brought me to see your show when I was like seriously so young. Like so like such a little kid dork. And It was crazy because it was like without that, you know, like we were talking about Green Day or like whatever, like AFI being on MTV or The Devil Wears Prada being a Christian band that I was allowed to listen to. Like without those little entry points along the way, I would not have made it to... I wouldn't have had the chance to have an awareness of who terror was and I wouldn't have had a chance to experience DIY music. And I wouldn't have had the chance to have all these experiences that shaped me super formatively. Um, And so, yeah, it's really crazy for them to cover the song. And I was like super flattered. Yeah.
0: I think that's to me, like you're talking about like the markers of success, not being social media numbers or, 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 money or anything like that like to me the marker of success for me in this world is like you know meeting people like yourself or 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 meeting people that were heroes to me growing up and finding out that they you know react to the stuff that i put out into the world like that's like i couldn't imagine a bigger thrill for me at 14 than knowing that the people i like are one day going to like what i do
1: oh my god yeah it was same same with like the jawbreaker using the my cover of accident prone in the documentary i was that was so i I could not believe that that was happening (laughs) it's like you are kidding me i read a book and there was like a whole chapter of just the jawbreaker chapter (laughs) and you are like a historical figure to me acknowledging my music it was so nuts but yeah that's yeah you're right that is probably the biggest barometer of success i think
0: Okay, I like one more question.
1: Okay, go for it.
0: The X's on the name are you? Are you? Is it an edge band? Is it an edge are, group? Are you
1: talking about uh, X Boy Genius X? Yes, dude. Yes. Okay. So, um, I let's just do it. Let's just do it because you can edit it later. Okay. Uh, so I can just dive. <laughs> I just dive into this. Um, the X Boy Genius X. I thought, I think maybe Phoebe or Lucy actually did that because. Um, we just joked about it being like a heavier band than really anything that we all individually are involved in. Um, and so we thought it would be funny to give it like a, a hardcore stylization, but I've been weirdly talking about straight edge so much because like, I don't, I don't claim straight edge, but I am like completely free of substances and sober and so are like many of the people that I tour with and so we have a lot of like running jokes about being an edge crew even though we're not and like this is this is yet another one of the um instances where I didn't realize how out of my depth I was until I started touring to other parts of the country and and getting outside of the bubble of Memphis because like when I was talking about the kids that I used to see hanging out in Han Topic and then all of a sudden we were all into Madball and trying to pretend like none of it ever happened and we were (laughs) always that hard. Then there were kids that were like very into being straight edge. And there was like, like these kids at my high school who had all these X tattoos. And I thought like the straight edge community in Memphis was like, Comparatively, I mean, they're, you know, I'm not speaking for everyone in Memphis, but comparatively, I feel like the straight edge community in Memphis was not scary at all. And then, like, my tour manager is from Detroit, and she has stories that, like, make me so scared to every, like, <laughs> because I used to feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, you just say that you're straight edge, and that means that you just, like, don't do drugs. And then I had to straight up read a book about straight edge when i was like 18 to figure out that it was more intense than that because there was no there's no one there's no one telling me so it was like such a delayed thing with me anyway don't, that's my spiel on straight edge
0: well don't worry your memphis is the at one time <laughs> the east coast kind of center of hardline with raid and the brian venerable episode from lucero Listen to that. Like your city is safe with its hardcore, hard oh straight representation. See,
1: okay, but that's the thing. Is like I'm so bummed because there's all these bands, and I got to meet people like this, like people that were in like Pez, and then there was also a band. Pez, we're a band.
0: Pez do is fucking you, awesome. Do you
1: fuck with Pez? I love Pez. I got listen, all the records. Listen, that is crazy. That's crazy to me. I love Pez. I okay, love wait. Pez. Oh, my God. Did you fuck with, Uh, is it Clinch Fist? Clinch Fist is like a little sloppier.
0: I don't know. Clinch They're like, okay. But Pez did a split with a Canadian band. What band? Two-line filler.
1: That is insane to me. I'm oh. like looking at all the Pez seven inches in my record collection. Okay, so Marvin, Uh, one of the, wait, 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 wait. I can't. I'm so sorry. You can cut this out if you want. No, now. Dude, what, what are you talking I, about? So, this is
0: gold. This, okay, is, this whole this podcast is gold. is gold.
1: Okay, so, um, did you ever meet Ceylon?
0: No, I don't think I've ever met anyone from Pez.
1: Oh, okay. I, dude, okay. I don't know why I just assumed that you were like, oh, fuck. Yeah, Pez. I like Pez. And then I just assumed that you'd met them. Duh. Anyway, <laughs> they are, Ceylon and uh Marvin are two of the sweetest people ever. Like, Marvin I went to, when uh, when Trump got elected and uh, tried to do that freaking absurd uh, Muslim ban, there was a march uh, from Cl- uh, Claiborne Temple to uh, the Civil Rights Museum, and I was, like, walking along with everybody, like, chanting or whatever, and then I see this, like, normie, looking guy in a sweater vest and like a tie and then i look twice and i'm like marvin what's up dude and he's just like there it's the guy from pez he's still like very active in the community in such a punk way this is such a cool full circle moment because he is so he um organizes a bunch of stuff with like the church health center and he does a bunch of like um Community service like board things um, and he's on like i I think it's called Friend of the Fairgrounds, and it's like this group of people that's trying to keep gentrification from being so awful in the community, and he's like um just like super active in all these cool ways, but it, like now they're city council ways. You know what I mean, but then yes. he was still out there, in the cold, like marching at this, um. Rally, and it's like that's in a sweater vest because he like just got off work and like had to pick up his kids or whatever. And I was like, "Man, you're the most punk punk of all time. That's so cool."
0: It was like you were saying, like where you were internalize the values, and it becomes yep. Becomes part of who you are Well, I'm going to blow your mind by bringing this full circle Back to Screamo Are you familiar with the band Billy Talent? Yeah! Originally, Billy Talent was called Pez And had a legal dispute with Memphis Pez And there was beef between The future Billy Talent, then called Pez And Memphis Pez Whoa. back Whoa! <laughs> so it all goes Bro. back
1: <laughs> this, I'm I wish you could see me in my apartment I have like both hands on my face Like what dude that's so crazy
0: well and and, uh, to add another layer remember i said they did a split with this band two line filler yeah so two line filler was this group done by this guy who's like a savant when it comes to writing pop punk songs he is a genius when it comes to writing pop punk songs named matt white matt white though was also in canada's straight edge icons at the time uh you know at the time uh chokehold
1: Oh, dude, I know Show Cold.
0: Yeah, so it's all weirdly connected.
1: Whoa!
0: <laughs> it's all <weirdly> What? <laughs> what is the heck? Ah. Uh, that this is, is crazy. I know it's it's it, I that's why I love, you know, like to bring it full circle back like, you know, that's why I love like, you know, f- hearing your music, finding out how deep you go. With this, like, you know, world of music and then getting to talk to you and having all this cool shit come up. This has been a huge thrill.
1: Dude. Yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you for um, making me feel very safe to talk about my sometimes questionable, sometimes not questionable history <laughs> in uh, DIY and uh, punk and metalcore and all of its hydra of iterations um man i can't wait i'm gonna send marvin an email and be like guess what
0: (laughs) (laughs) please do tell him he's got fans up here that sided with them over the canadian pez back then
1: hell yeah i will
0: well you know and it's also like i one thing i've learned doing this thing is everybody is somebody's poser like, uh, and, you know, like everybody is like Ian McKay. I've had people on this show that shit talk to Ian McKay. I've had people. How do you
1: shit talk Ian Is Ian McKay?
0: I, I listened to the MVP part one episode and you're a little, a little uh, shade thrown at Ian McKay. But like, yeah, like I, this has been a huge thrill. Will you come back at some point and do a part two?
1: Oh, y- you know it. You know I'll do a part two.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Of course, my pleasure. I can't wait to speak with you again.
0: Thank you, Julian, for coming on the show. And You can hear right there, we got plans. We got plans for, for multiple parts in the future. I talked to Julian just the other day, in fact, and we made a plan that we are going to be doing that part two sooner rather than later. But more on that in the near future. Speaking of near future, next week, Fucked Up comes to Europe. Uh, we're going to be playing some shows, and please come out and check it out. We're going to have a fun time. Check out the dates at fuckedup.cc. Also in the future, episode 200. That's where things are going to change around here. We're going to have some fun leading up to that. 200 episodes! If you've been listening since the beginning, you know, since the uh, arcade... No, no, Martin, Martin um, from Beggars is the first one. If you've been listening since the Martin Mills episode... Did you ever think it was going to make it to episode 200? Because I sure as hell didn't think I'd make it to episode 200 doing them. That is for sure. I thought I would have found a way out of this thing long before now. But anyway, next week we are going to be getting closer to that 200 mark with the artist of the year for myself here at Turned Out a Punk. Uh, certainly put out the record of the year for myself on over here at Turned a Punk. That is Tony Molina. Tony joins us on the show next week. One of my favorite people. A, an amazing musician. Plays in all sorts of different types of bands. Has a deep, deep knowledge of the punk scene, the West Bay. The, the Bay in general, but certainly the West Bay. He is an authority on the West Bay. And we get into all of it next week right here on the show. It's a fantastic one. It's a long one but it's a fantastic one. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember anyone can do this shit, go out there and make your own culture. Someone's going to like it. You know, someone out there is going to like what you do. And when you find that person that likes what you do, man it fills your bucket. You heard us talking about it. Just fills the bucket. All right, that's it. Uh, go out there and sign your organ donors cards too, please. Uh, make that something you can do, uh, before you pass on. And that's it. Uh, be kind and, uh, you know, fuck fascism and and that's it. Love you. See you next week.